Welcome to the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation Podcast. In this episode, we answer our students' questions and share information about yoga therapy and meditation with the intention of creating a new paradigm in wellness. Today's episode is a recording taken directly from a live Q&A session with Breathing Deeply founder Brant Pasalakwa and students of our Yoga Therapy Foundations program. Our first question is, what practices are appropriate for someone recovering from COVID? I think, um, I mean, from what I can see, I think the primary things, you know, you don't do pranayamas like big ones when somebody's lungs are damaged, you know, when you're until you're into that like end stage of recovery. But if he's breathing well, um, then yeah, you could you could help him enhance his inhale. It'll it'll help also keep his diaphragm like strong, you know, because he might be in a weakened state in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and then give him some restorative stuff. I mean, because he has got to heal. But those are those would be the two things I'd recommend. I would I would sort of get right on that restorative stuff like yoga nidras and things because it might theoretically I don't have any evidence of this, but theoretically the thing that would help you if you had long COVID would probably help you not get long COVID. So um, I'd probably get right on that and get him into some beneficial brainwave states that would help him heal. So that's what Yoga Nidra does easily, if you can do that. And people call lots of things Yoga Nidras, but generally for, um, there's like two kind of camps. So there's the, sort of body scanning and lots of rotational consciousness. That's like what's been studied most. Um, And then there's like the one that's in the course where you drop down through your koshas. So you're like, feel your body, you walk around the body, then you feel your breath. So that kind of gets you to like notice all the aspects of yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think they both have different kinds of benefits, but for this kind of thing, like either one would be fine. Um, When you get super targeted with the yoga nidra, um, for healing, I'm not sure. Um, this is just my opinion, but uh, I'm not sure that probably does anything um, because I think there's a there's a certain set of reasons for the benefits of it. So um, I think it's just more cognitive stuff and less kind of sinking in and getting your your awareness to change at like a deeper level. So. Um, that's how I see it. I could be wrong. Um, so I think if you can just get him to kind of do like that sort of like a longish body scanny kind of rotational thing, and then you can either Mm -hmm. drop him down through the koshas or that could be the whole thing would be fine. Um, with the Saraswati method, which is kind of like probably the more popular one, which is what IREST is based on does is like takes you around your body and then um has you like bring up images and those images um like kind of rotate and they're they're not meaningful they're just rotating so it's actually if you if you haven't done this go on to youtube and type in swami saraswati yoga nidra and it's him like talking through a microphone (laughs) like it's like a really weird kind of awesome uh funny thing it's about 25 minutes but do it sometime because that's like that's that met that's where the method's from um, and then the one I have in there is the one that like integral yoga uses and like Shivananda uses. It's uh, it's more like feel your body, feel your breath, notice your thoughts, uh, notice the space between your thoughts, like drop into witness consciousness and lie there. 
So mm-hmm. okay. um, people react to those. Usually that's like one of them is way easier. Um, but either way, if you can get them to kind of drop down into either of them, you'll get the, the health benefit, which is okay. what you're going for, which is getting um, his brainwave states to change into the same brainwave states that you get while you're sleeping. It's like you get another, I mean, there's no exact thing here, but it's the way I've always thought of it is like you get another round of deep sleep with, at a time where you're not sleeping. So, which is different than a nap because it'll actually change your brainwave states in a different way. So you won't get there in a, in a 20 minute nap, but you can get there in yoga nidra. And then when they study people who do it all the time, they find that they have more of those brainwave states in their waking time. So they're healthier, technically, depending on how they take care of themselves. How does alternate nostril breathing affect the left and right energetic channels? Well, the, the point, well, there's a few reasons you might do alternate nostril breathing, but the point of alternate nostril breathing in terms of nostril dominance, as I see it, is to reset it. So it's supposed to move and there's a rhythm it's supposed to move and it can get messed up in all sorts of ways, sort of like sleep cycles. So it's a really good practice to do. Um, in terms of that. Some people like end on one side and there's theories about that, but I don't think honestly, in terms of your nervous system, it would matter that much. (laughs) What they test is like whether you just do one side over and over again. It's hard to know. I've seen other studies where it didn't come out so well, Um, but you know, and there's these theories about like the sun and moon side of your system, you know, being stimulated, but for sure, what one of the things alternate nostril breathing will do is reset that rhythm and help keep it rhythmic, which it's supposed to be. So um, there's these monks, I think they're in Thailand or Cambodia in that area, but they um, they only eat when they're, it's their left side, is I always forget. Um, right side, yeah. So they wait. So if they get to lunch and it's not open, they just sit there and wait. So they don't manipulate it. And when they feel like their right is, is dominant, they start eating. And like somebody was telling me sometimes I'll just sit there for like two hours because it's, <laughs> it's not shifting for them. Um, so it, it's interesting, but that's where I've seen it talked about most because some people will get into, um, I think based on what you're saying too, we'll get into like say sympathetic nervous system states and they're, and it won't switch or it won't switch properly, or it'll stay on one side for two hours and the other side for, you know, whatever, an hour, it gets all wonky. I got into all that stuff a lot when I was first doing this stuff and I tried all sorts of things, but then I realized this isn't really gonna work. Like I'm not really gonna, it it works on like a more subtle level. So like maybe for you as a yoga practitioner and someone who's like pays attention all the time to everything, you know, you might have a bigger effect, but for like regular people, I don't think you're gonna really affect their pitta balance. Like I would do so many things before I did that. Most of those ideas come from people who are literally sitting in Lotus in a hut for 14 hours a day. And they're like, oh, I noticed that when I breathe out my brain, you know what I mean? It's like, the, it's a different thing, like that kind of awareness, so. Um, so it might work for some people, but I, I haven't found much utility with it. Which pranayama exercises are good for dealing with stress at work? You can definitely, some people do diaphragmatic breath. Some people, people do pressed lip breathing. Some people do like humming breath. Um, 
like a that buzzing breath sometimes it's called where you block all your things and hum um there's certain things that that really help people kind of reset if, if if i'm at that point with somebody i'll teach them how to like notice their own feet you know i'll give them like a physical cue because they're sort of at this point where they're leaving their body and i i've I'm seeing that that's the issue. And then once they can feel their feet, they can start to breathe again. Um, so usually if you just kind of tell someone to breathe, but they can't really, they're trying to hide it. It's like, it's not gonna go well, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I, usually get I usually get physical cues. And then the people that can do it, I usually just give diaphragmatic breathing because it's the easiest thing to do. And it, you know, it definitely works, right? So, um, you know, no need to get fancy. I guess that's the lesson today. No need to get fancy. Just turn on that parasympathetic with your diaphragm actually moving um, and you're kind of good to go. Also breathing through the nose, like people start to breathe through the mouth, they start to mouth breathe when they're stressed all the time. So if you can get them practicing keeping their mouth shut, you know, mm -hmm. and feeling their belly move, that, that can go a long way. I often get people into mantra and outside of that so they can use it. So if people like have a mantra, usually that mantra kind of attaches itself to your breath a little bit, and then um, they can use it anytime, right? So it's like super portable. So that that's my go-to um, if they're open to that, yeah. Because then what happens is they start to cue them together. So what's cool is like when they say the mantra, they, like some people who are like, especially people who are like little bit reverse breathers that go back and forth. If you train them to like do non-reversed breathing or regular breathing, you know, with a mantra that when they say the mantra, like they'll, it'll like cue their mind to actually like breathe into their belly. Um, so I've had a bunch of people use that. So things like that. Um, this idea that you're gonna, I just like to caution you against doing too much work as like real time. What do I do when I'm having a panic attack? It's not where we shine. Um, and it's not the best work. It's not the best way for them to be thinking about it. I think changing your baseline nervous system response is actually a better focus of their time. Um, because people get stuck in these cycles of just like big symptoms and then trying to manage them when they could be, you know. We we're just talking about somebody on one of these Q&As. They had, they had been doing yoga and they had been doing yoga like, I can't remember what it was, three times a week or four times a week or like a yoga class. Mm -hmm. And they had gotten off their depression meds. And that's what they did. And they did that for like a year and then COVID hit and everything kind of fell apart. And they're having like big anxiety and depression problems again. And it was just so striking the story because it was like, oh, <laughs> there's a solution. You already have the solution. You know, it might be slightly difficult to, but it's not that hard to do, you know, considering what the benefit is. Um, and this person anyway was asking for what you're asking for. Like, what do I do when this happens? What do I do that happens? Anyway, in that conversation, I said to the, the yoga, it was the practicum, but anyway, I said to the yoga therapist, I was like, I would just really stick with the thing that <laughs> is important here, you know? So she doesn't go down that symptom spiral. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, do your practice in this way. And you're literally not only like not having a panic attack at work, but you don't even need your meds. I mean, that's a pretty strong response to a few yoga classes a week. I mean, I, I can't see a world where you wouldn't want to keep doing that. Um, sorry, this person was having some trouble because they had some physical limitations and whatever. So we worked that out. But, um, but the message was like clear. And I've seen that a bunch of times where people kind of, they get into difficult positions and they lose their self-care. And then instead of like sort of taking it back, they, they the momentum just kind of carries them, right? So um, it's probably like the number one question asked to yoga teachers, like, what do I do when? Like, what do I do? It's like, I don't know, we've probably all heard that from students, right? Like, what do I do when this happens? As opposed to like, how do I, you know, what Ayurveda would say is, um, which we're part of in a kind of tangential way is, you know, you want to catch that disease state like 15 steps before that. That's the answer to your problems. You know, you want to be living in the full-blown um, example of it. So, and it kind of, um, as a yoga therapist, you really want to represent how much power people have over their own health. And one of the ways to do that is to explain that kind of concept where becoming more and more sensitive to your own needs and, and acting on them, you know, creates a scenario where you're less sick, whatever that means, you know, um, in general, because that's really where we do an amazing job we offer something that's very special in that way. In terms of symptom relief, it's like, it's kind of hard to compete with the meds, you know? <laughs> there's, there's so many things that will switch your current state a little bit, you know? But none of those things can do really much for your overall health, usually. What is the difference between mama points and acupressure points? So, so like acupressure, just straight up acupressure is based on like TCM, which is traditional Chinese medicine, that same like map. And so different points have different effects on different systems. Um, the marma therapy is, they're both based on elements actually, but the marma therapy is based on like the Ayurvedic kind of Indian version of events and the <laughs> acupressure is based on the other thing. And then you have like other versions, like I studied Shiatsu for years, which is like more Japanese, which, um, is based on lines, but actually interacting with the lines more than points. Um, and again, there's like so many things. I had like an aha when I was studying Shiatsu of like, I have no idea if like any of this is true or not true, but I'm understanding now that this person that's teaching it to me, this is how he learned it. And if I think and do exactly what he says, I'm gonna be able to do what he can do. And he was amazing panned out <laughs> like I was like you know he taught me what he knew you know based on the way he learned it um so you can get really into like the theory of it all but um I think a lot of it has to do with the sensitivity of the practitioner um but those TCM points do have some science behind them so for certain things there's like basic stuff like people use like uh, PC3 all the time for nausea right they have those bands um so there's like a bunch of points that do like a bunch of things that it's pretty clear they work. Uh, the one thing I will say is you have to hold them long enough 
to get effects. And there's something really cool about having someone else do it because we know that um, there are physiological effects from someone else touching you in general. So it gets kind of complicated. Just like any um, traditional medicine, it's like all borne out by experience. So of course, like some of the points like match up because people get nauseous and then, you know, 2000 miles away, two different practitioners figure out something <laughs> that works and they pass it on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I used to work on um, just in that vein. Uh, I, I worked on adults all the time, but for a while I had a, um, using this Chinese system, uh, I worked on babies and, uh, and toddlers. And it was totally amazing. It was like, it was like, I mean, I should probably just only do that, honestly. Like kids would come in, they have like really bad eczema for like a year. They were two years old. After like three treatments, the eczema was gone. Like crazy stuff, you know, like that would never happen on adults. So, but it did kind of show me like, oh, wow, like kind of reinvigorated my uh, belief, I guess, or faith in those kinds of medicines I was like this is amazing like colicky kids who just like stopped crying at night you know <laughs> to the parents do like three little things um and you're just like I can't believe that worked like <laughs> so that was fun um the skin conditions going away which was a common thing was like probably the most impressive you know so there's definitely definitely efficacy there how long should my yoga therapy sequences be? Well, I mean, in general, you want to do the least amount someone needs to do to get the result they want. Hard to know what that is. But we put that in a course to knock you out of your yoga teacher mindset, right? Where you're, li where you're literally doing the opposite. You're buffering, right? You're like, okay, I've got an hour and 15 minutes. And I want them really to do these four things. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to get them there in different ways. And I'm going to, you know, there's all sorts of things we do as yoga teachers in class formats. But we really want you to start thinking like, okay, this person's back hurts. What's the, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, well, I mean, scoliosis is a good example. Like people will leave with like three poses to do from my office, you know, not 14. You know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's 14, but. You know, sometimes it's one, you know, it just yeah. depends what needs to be done. So, um, you know, following the sort of formula of like making sure they're warmed up and then strengthening things and yeah. then stretching things. It's like you, yeah. you need enough poses to do that. You're trying to get something done. I mean, there's lots of different ways to think about it. Cause like you, you probably do. I mean, it's rare somebody has weak middle traps and like, nothing else in their back body like everything else is like super strong you know i mean that's not yeah. usually how it works but we do you do want to think like what's going to be most effective you know what's the not just like how many things can i throw at this person but what's the thing that's gonna work at least for now so like you said like you might have them do just cobra you know for six weeks or eight weeks and then it might look a little different right look in general more reps and longer periods of time are going to be, you know, you have to, you have to challenge that individual system. Mm -hmm. So someone who's really weak, you're going to like, you know, move and breathe and it's going to be like yeah. a big rev, rev, revelation to those muscles. Mm -hmm. And then versus like, 
I don't know, let's say you have an athlete with like a, a weak muscle group where you're going to have to really hold for like a really long time for anything to really happen. Um, so it's not really a prescribed thing in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and the weakness is, is not just about weakness, but it's also about muscle balance, right? So you're going to see real fast, but I guess, I guess what I should say is you're trying to work someone towards fatigue without complete fatigue because they don't need to do that to build strength. Towards I mean, total fatigue, fatigue will will build strength, but then you're also risking injury and the variety of things. But you start getting up to, to like 80% of someone's capacity, then they're going to get stronger. So that's kind of what you're doing as a yoga therapist. So, you know, the way we do it is like we move and breathe in and out. And then our next step is to hold it. You know, if you look at like Vinny yoga, they're just going to move and breathe in and out forever and maybe move slower and that would work too, you know, um, but you have to see that they're being challenged and also capable of doing it. What is the issue with yoga classes focused on a peak pose? Um, the reason I hate them is because you have a bunch of stuff to warm up and then you have, let's say like what should be like the peak pose, whatever that is, some sort of twist. And now I'm fatigued. And now you make me do it five more times. So the chance of me getting hurt is now gone from like zero to like, you know, or 2% to like 50%, which is why people get hurt in yoga classes too much. And I'm not saying you can't repeat things, but they have to be in the context of the person. The reason you'd repeat it is to either come at it from a different angle, because like you're trying to give it more input to strengthen, but that would only be after they could do the first thing well. So you probably shouldn't be doing that until like the end of your time with your client. Like you might get there and then they're fine, but like um, those classes have always, and I've taken a million of them and enjoyed them. So I'm just telling you, but like while I'm doing them, I'm always like, wow, this is a terrible idea for that guy. Cause I'm looking across the room and that guy got super fatigued in your warm up of 37 chaturangas. And now you're teaching him headstand, handstand. And his like arms are like, just like in all his like muscles, supporting muscles are like toast, you know, and he's too tired. And so now he's gonna compensate in bad ways. So that's kind of what happens with yoga therapy with your client. Thanks for listening to the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a positive review and sharing it with friends. For more information about our yoga therapy and meditation trainings and programs, visit breathingdeeply.com.